Today with us, we have Professor Nick, Nick Bostrom. He was born in Helsingborg in Sweden. He's a philosopher at St. Cross College at the University of Oxford. He's known for his work on existential risk, the anthropic principle, human enhancement ethics, the reversal test, and consequentialism. He holds a PhD from the London School of Economics, and he is the founding director of both the Future of Humanity Institute and the Oxford Martin Program on the Impacts of the Future of Technology. He's the author of over 200 publications, including the book we are presenting today, Superintelligence, and he has been awarded the Eugene R. Cannon Award and has been listed in Foreign Policy's Top 100 Global Thinkers list. Please join me in welcoming Professor Nick Bostrom. Yeah, great. Thanks for all uh, you for coming. And um, I'm not going to try to summarize the entire book, but I want to give some of the background from which this work emerges. Um, so I run this thing uh, called the Future of Humanity Institute, which has a very sort of ambitious name. It's a small research uh, center where mathematicians, philosophers, and scientists are trying to think through the really big picture questions for humanity, ones that often um, traditionally have been relegated um, to, to crackpots, um, relegated to uh, journalists or retired physicists to write some popular book, but questions that are actually extremely important and, and I think deserve uh, like close attention. So <clears throat> to give some sense of where, where I'm coming from, one can think about the human condition in, in grand schematic terms on, on a diagram like this, where we plot time on the x-axis, and then on the other axis, some measure of capability, like level of technological advancement, uh, measure of the overall economic productivity that we have at some given point in time. And what we take to be the normal human condition uh, the idea that you wake up in the morning and then commute to work and sit in front of a screen and you're, you're like having too much rather than too little to eat uh, is a narrow band within this much larger space of possibilities. It's obviously uh, an anomaly on evolutionary timescales. The human species is, is fairly young on this planet. It's also an anomaly on, on just historical timescales. For most of human history, we were inhabiting a Malthusian state and it's really only in the last uh, few hundred years that we've kind of soared up, and even then, just in some parts of the world. It's also a huge anomaly, obviously, in space, the, the, the little crust on our planet uh, being very different from most, most of the stuff around us, which is just uh, ultra-high vacuum. Um, and, and yet, we tend to think that this is the normal way for things to be, that, that any uh, like claim that things might be very different is, is a radical claim that, that needs some extraordinary evidence. Yet, it's possible, if we reflect on it, that the longer the timescale we are considering, the greater the probability that we will exit this human condition um, in, in either of one or two ways, uh, downwards or upwards. This picture has two attractor states. So if we exit the human conditions in the downwards direction, there, there is like in population biology the concept of a minimum viable population size. If too few individuals left, they can't sustain themselves. There is an attractor state down there, which is extinction. Once you're extinct, you tend to stay extinct. And uh, more than 99.9% .9 of all the species that, that once flew, crawled, or swam on this planet are extinct. So that, that certainly is one possible future. Um, another way that the human condition could end would be that we exit uh, in the upwards direction. And there, too, I think that there is an attractor state. Um, 
if and when a civilization manages to obtain um, technological maturity, meaning we have developed most of all technologies that are physically possible to be developed, and we have the ability to, to spread through space in a reasonable way through automated self-replicating colonization probes, then um, the destiny might be pretty well set. The level of existential risk will go down, and, and maybe we can continue on like that for millions and billions of years, uh, just growing at a significant fraction of the speed of light uh, indefinitely, un until the, the cosmological expansion makes it impossible to reach any further resources. Like if something is too far away today, then by the time we would get there, as it were, it has moved further away. So there is a finite bubble of stuff that something starting from where we are uh, could in principle get. Um, so that, that whole bubble of stuff, I call the uh, humanities uh, cosmic endowment. It, there is a lot of it there. And, and that, that might be another like, possible attractor state. Um, if, if one has the view that, um, so that this, this stuff that could in principle be reached there is, is very important. If one has some kind of view on ethics where uh, fundamentally the, the, the moral significance of, of an experience or a life uh, does not depend on when it is taking place. Um, just as many people have the, the, the belief that from a fundamental moral point of view, it doesn't matter where it takes place. Like if, if you travel to Africa and you suffer there, it's like as bad as if you were suffering here. If one has that view about time, um, then um, this cosmic endowment matters a lot because uh, it could be used to create an enormous amount of value. Um, we can count it up roughly. We know that there are like billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars. And each of those stars could have billions of people living around it for billions of years. And you get an enormous number of orders of magnitude if, if you try to measure the size of the future, even just assuming biological instantiations of, of minds. If, if you imagine a more efficient digital implementation, you can add another big uh, chunk of uh, orders of magnitude. And so what you find fairly robustly if you just work the numbers is that um, if you have this evaluative view, some broadly aggregative consequentialist view, then even a very, very small reduction in the net level of existential risk uh, will be worth more in expected utility terms than any uh, interventions you could do that would only have local effects here. Uh, even something as wonderful as like curing cancer or eliminating world hunger uh, would really be, from this evaluative perspective, insignificant compared to reducing the level of existential risk by, say, one hundredth of one percentage point. So this level of existential risk becomes then maybe an important lens through which to look at global priorities. Uh, I, I define it as, as a risk that either um, threatens the survival of Earth-originating intelligent life or threatens to permanently and drastically destroy our potential for desirable development. Um, and now, I think that maybe in a complete accounting of ethics, there are other variables as well to take into account. We have particular obligations to, to people uh, that are near and dear to us. There might be other things in, in addition to this sort of aggregative consequentialist component. Now, nevertheless, I think it's in there and, and it's important. So um, um, if one then tries to look more carefully at this category of existential risk, like what could actually go wrong in this way? What could permanently destroy our future? Um, uh, it's a very small subset of all the things that can go wrong. Like most things that, that, that threaten human welfare um, don't really uh, create 
any existential risk. So it, it kind of narrows down the range of concerns quite significantly. A first uh, distinction that, that like, like is, is obvious in this field is the distinction between risks arising from nature and, and risks arising in some way from human activity. And a fairly robust uh, result, I think, is that all the big existential risks, uh, at least if we're thinking a time scale of 100 years or so, are anthropomorphic, arising from uh, human activities. And, and one can see that just by reflecting that the human species has already been around for 100,000 years. So if, if firestorms and earthquakes and asteroids haven't done us in in the last 100,000 years, probably not going to do us in in the next 100 years. Whereas uh, we will be introducing entirely new kinds of hazards into the world uh, that we have no track record of surviving. And more specifically, I think all the really big existential risks um, are related to certain anticipated uh, future technologies that we might well develop over the coming decades or 100 years. Um, and another way to, like, another framing that makes a similar point is to uh, think in terms of this metaphor of a great urn, um, which contains a lot of balls. And the balls represent different technologies that can be discovered, or more broadly, different ideas that, that we can invent. And throughout human history, we have reached into this ball repeatedly and pulled out ball after ball. And on balance, uh, all these discoveries, all these ideas have been an immense boon for us. Uh, it's because of all these ideas that, that we now live in abundance and why there can be 7 billion of us. Um, there have been some discoveries, perhaps, um, that have been mixed blessings that have done both good and ill. And, and a relatively small number, it is, it's not totally trivial to think about it, but balls that we would have been better off without having extracted from this urn, like discoveries that we would better w without. I mean, you could maybe chemical weapons, uh, say, or, or nuclear weapons, or perhaps like torture instruments of different kinds. That There are a few things that uh, like, seems to have been clearly bad. Um, but there hasn't been any discovery so far made that like, has uh, is such that it like automatically destroys the civilization that discovers it. So there hasn't been any black ball pulled out from this urn. Um, and we can, we can ask what, what that kind of discovery could look like. Uh, what, what would be a possible discovery such that it kind of almost automatically spells the end of the discoverers? Um, and it might be useful here to think of a counterfactual. So we discovered uh, just over half a century ago nuclear weapons. Um, and it turned out, fortunately, that in order to make um, a thermonuclear device, you need some uh, difficult to obtain raw materials. You need highly enriched uranium or plutonium. And the only way to get those uh, is by having some large facility uh, that's very expensive to build, takes a lot of energy, is easy to see. So very few people can build uh, their own nuclear device. But suppose it had turned out to be differently. Suppose it had turned out instead that it had been possible to make a thermonuclear warhead by some simple procedure like baking sand in your microwave oven. Okay? So, so now we know physics uh, doesn't allow for that. But before you actually did the relevant physics, how could you possibly have known whether particle physics would have like, provided some easy route to unleash these, these kinds of energies? So if that had been the case, then presumably that would then be the end point of, of human civilization. Once it became so easy to destroy entire cities, we could never again have um, cities, and maybe we would have been knocked back to the Stone Age, and by the time we would have again climbed back up to the technology level where somebody could build microwave ovens, we would presumably fall back again, and that might be forever the end of it. Um, but so we were lucky on that occasion, 
Um, but the question is whether we will continue to be lucky always, like whether in this big ball, if we keep extracting ball in this big urn, if we keep extracting ball after ball, whether eventually we will pull out the black ball. If there is a black ball in there and we just keep pulling them out, then eventually, presumably, we will get it. And we don't yet have the ability to put a ball back in the urn. We can't undiscover things that we have discovered. Um, so here is like some kind of um, quick list of some areas where one might suspect that there could be these, these kinds of black balls. Um, AI is, is, is one that I'll, I'll kind of come back to more in this talk. Uh, there are some others. Synthetic biology is like, will I think over the coming decades uh, vastly increase uh, the powers of human beings to, to change the world around us and ourselves. Um, those powers might be used wisely or not. Uh, molecular nanotechnology, uh, like, not the kind of thing that makes car tires today, but some kind of more advanced future version of that, like Eric Drexler imagined. Um, totalitarianism enabling technologies. So remember again the definition of an existential risk, not only extinction scenarios, but also ways to permanently lock ourselves into some radically suboptimal state. Um, and, and you could imagine that um, maybe new technological discoveries that make surveillance very easy or, or some new discovery that makes it possible uh, through psychological or neurophysiological techniques to, to modify desires could sort of change some of the parameters of, of, of the sort of social political game where, where new types of social organization becomes a, a lot easier to establish and maintain. Um, human modification, geoengineering. I, I've, I've left, and there are more you could add there, and I've left a lot of these bullets below here on the list uh, unknown. So it's useful to reflect that if this question, what are the biggest existential risks, had been asked 100 years ago, then um, presumably none of the ones that I now would place close to the top would have been listed. Um, they didn't have computers, so they wouldn't have listed machine intelligence. Synthetic biology was not even a concept, nor, nor nanotechnology. Uh, you know, maybe they would have worried some about like totalitarian tendencies, um, but the others not so much. So, if we reflect on, on our situation today, we have to maybe uh, acknowledge from like standing outside and looking in that there are probably some additional existential risks that are not yet on our radar, uh, but that could turn out to be as, as significant as some of the others. Which suggests that there could be a high value to, to doing analysis on this and research to try to, to find them out. Um, but um, if one combines these considerations and with one other hypothesis, um, um, say a mild or moderate form of technological determinism, which I think is true, the idea basically that um, assuming science and technology continues, there's no like global collapse, then eventually we'll probably discover all technologies that could be discovered, at least all general purpose technologies that have a lot of implications in many fields. I think that's fairly plausible. It's not assured, but that, that level of technological determinism seems quite possible to me. It's a little bit like um, if you think of a big box that starts out empty and you pour in sand in it. This is like you, you could fund one kind of research or you can fund another kind of research. And uh, w what research you fund, where you, your priorities are depend, like that determines where the, the sand piles up in this box. So you get different technologies depending on what you do. But over time, if you just keep pouring in sand, then eventually the whole box will fill up. And, and so that, that seems fairly plausible. Now, if one has that view, then how should one kind of, what attitude should one take to all of this? Like, what, what should we do? And so one, one possible response is uh, one, I think, best expressed by this, some blogger, I don't know 
who it is, Washbash, uh, commented on some blog, that I instinctively think go faster. Not because I think this is better for the world. Why should I care about the world when I'm dead and gone? I want it to go fast, damn it. This increases the chances I have of experiencing a more technologically advanced future. Um, so here we've got to be clear what, what exactly the question is that we're asking. So if the question is, what would be best for me personally? What should we favor from or hope for from an egoistic point of view? Uh, then I think that Washbash is uh, correct. Um, from an individual point of view, if, well, first of all, if you are somehow hoping for these cosmic uh, lifespans of millions of years and being able to like, travel and expand into the universe, then clearly that's not going to happen unless something radical changes. Like the way things are going, uh, I'm sad to say, we're all just going to die uh, from aging in a few decades. Like we're all rotting. So, that, so the only way that that could possibly change is some radical upset, like some cure for aging or uploading into computers or something really radical would have to happen to kind of thwart that. Um, so that, that would be a reason to favor faster uh, technological growth. Or even if you're despairing of that, even uh, you can just hope to like, have more interesting gadgets around and a higher standard of living, which we can hope for through technology. Um, however, if the question we ask is instead, what would be best from an impersonal point of view? Uh, then I think um, the answer is quite different. Something perhaps closer to uh, this principle of technological development. Uh, rather than maximize the speed with which we rush ahead. Um, this principle would say that we should retard the development of dangerous and harmful technologies, especially ones that raise the level of existential risk, and accelerate the development of beneficial technologies, uh, especially those that reduce the existential risks posed by nature or by other technologies. Um, so the idea here is that rather than asking the question for some hypothetical technology, would we be better off without it? Um, we ask a different question. Because basically, on this moderate form of technological determinism, that's just not on the table. We can't relinquish a technology permanently. But what we should think of instead is on the margin, um, should we try to hasten the arrival of some technology or slow it down? We might be able to make some difference there, say, by a couple of months. Um, and we want to think about how that small difference will influence our likelihood of harvesting this uh, cosmic endowment. Um, if you think that it was literally impossible to even make a small difference in the timing, then that would mean that all the funding uh, and all the effort that goes into technology development would just be wasted. So presumably we think we have some ability to at least uh, move things around in time. Um, and the, the principle of differential technological development suggests that it might be quite significant uh, sometimes exactly when different things arrive, particularly the sequence in which different technologies arrive. So if there's going to be at some point um, like a really harmful uh, uh, bioengineered pathogen and that can spread really easily and is very lethal, and there's going to be at some point like a universal vaccine, you want to invent the vaccine before you invent the pathogen. Um, if there's going to be at some point machine superintelligence, and if there is some possible technology that could ensure the safety of machine superintelligence, you want the latter to come before the former. Um, an argument that trying to retard development of technology would make it more dangerous because you're driving it underground, or you have less opportunity to do it out in the open and develop safeguards yeah. like we've had, like we had, for example, with the Acelomar guidelines in biotech, which have actually been 
very effective for 30 years. There's been no accidents. Uh, and if you drive these technologies underground, you don't have the opportunity to have those kinds of safeguards. Yeah, that's a, so the principle leaves open whether you should focus on the retarding or the accelerating. If you wanted to retard, you know, maybe one way would be just to refrain from uh, like funding it or actively devoting yourself to accelerating it. Um, with regard to AI, um, which I'll get to later, I think definitely the accelerating uh, the work on the safety problem is clearly the way to go. Because it's just a lot easier to make a big difference there than to try to somehow retard the development of AI work itself. Um, <clears throat> maybe we can return to that more in, in the, uh, the Q&A. Um, <clears throat> so we have a picture, um, perhaps, um, like this, where again, like three axes here. So like technology on one, this is the same as capability on the earlier slide. Um, coordination, some measure of the degree to which um, humankind is able to solve global uh, coordination problems, avoiding wars and arms races and, and polluting our uh, communal resources. And inside, some measure of wisdom, the ability, like the, our understanding into what, like, what uses of our capability would actually make things better. Um, so it might well be that in order to have the best possible outcome, uh, to have utopia, that we need maximum amounts of all of these, like super duper advanced technology is necessary to realize the best state, great coordination, so we don't use that technology to, to wage war against one another as we have through so much of human history, and, and great wisdom so that we apply all these abilities to, to really do things that are worthwhile. Um, so that, that might be where we have to be if we want to realize the best possible state. Now that then leaves open the question of whether from the position we are currently in, at the moment we would be better off with faster uh, developments in each of these areas. It might be, for example, that even though we ultimately want maximum technology, we would be better off getting that technology only after we have first made more progress on uh, um, like global uh, coordination um, or wisdom. Um, anyway, so that's like, uh, in, in like by view of like a broader context. So, so we are thinking about other existential risks and stuff like that. Um, and um, Superintelligence, as I will talk about, I think is, is one uh, big existential risk, perhaps, perhaps arguably, perhaps the biggest, I'm not sure. But it's peculiar in one respect that although it's a big um, danger in its own right, it's also uh, something that could help eliminate other existential risks. So it's, if, if we imagine like a very simple model where we have synthetic biology, nanotechnology, and AI, we don't know which order they will come. Maybe they each have some existential risks associated with them. Suppose we first develop synthetic biology we get lucky and we get through that, the existential risks, however big they are. And then we reach molecular nanotechnology and we are lucky we get through that as well. And finally, AI. Um, the existential risks along that path are kind of the sum of these three different ones that we'll each have to uh, surmount. Um, in another trajectory, maybe we get AI first and we have to face the existential risk with that. But then if we do get lucky there, we, we no longer have to face the risk with synthetic biology and nanotechnology because we then have the, uh, the superintelligence to help us through. So in reality, it gets a lot more complicated than that. Um, and we can discuss the intricacies more in the Q&A. Um, but, but thinking about the sequencing and timing, uh, I think, rather than yes or no, would we want the technology or not, is like an initial necessary first step to be able to have any kind of meaningful conversation about this. So superintelligence, I think, will be uh, a big game changer, um, the biggest thing that will ever have happened in human history. Uh, at some point, this transition to superintelligence, there are two possible pathways in principle one can imagine that could lead there. 
um, we could enhance biological intelligence. We know uh, biological intelligence has like increased radically in, in the past in, in kind of making the human species. Um, or our machine intelligence, um, which is still far below uh, biological intelligence insofar as we're focusing on any form of general purpose smartness and learning ability, but increasing at a more rapid clip. Um, so specifically, um, you could imagine interventions on some individual brain to enhance biological cognition. I'll say a few words about that just uh, shortly. Um, or improvements in, in our ability to pool our individual information processing devices to enhance our collective rationality and wisdom. Um, I won't talk about that, but that's clearly an exciting frontier with, with like what internet and new institutions, prediction markets and other things like that. Um, there are like some kind of hybrid approaches. You can imagine between biology and uh, machines, the cyborg approach. I uh, personally don't think that that's where the action will be. Um, it just seems to me very difficult, um, technologically speaking, to create implants that would really significantly enhance um, our cognitive ability, more than you could have by having the same device outside of yourself. So you could say, wouldn't it be great with a little chip in, in the brain, and you could like Google just by thinking about it. And well, I mean, I can already Google, and I don't have to have a neurosurgery to be able to do that. Um, we have these amazing interfaces like the eyeballs that can project 100 million bits per second straight into dedicated neural wetware that's like highly optimized for making sense of this uh, information. Uh, and it's really hard to beat that, I think. Uh, in any case, I mean, the, 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 the rate at which sensory information can be um, entered into the brain is not really the limiting factor. The first thing the brain does with all of this visual information is to throw away almost all of it and just extract relevant parts. Um, and then uh, different um, versions of, of machine intelligence, where on the one hand we have sort of um, purely synthetic methods that don't care about biology, but you try to make progress in mathematics and statistics and figure out clever algorithms. And two approaches that try to learn from this one general intelligent system that already exists that we can study in the human brain, um, draw inspiration from that, and maybe even reverse engineer it, or in the limiting case, literally copying it in, in whole brain emulation where you would, um, where you would take a, a particular um, human brain uh, and uh, freeze it and slice it up, feed those slices through like an array of microscopes to take good pictures so you don't have a stack of these pictures and use automated image recognition software to extract uh, the uh, connectivity matrix of the neural network that was in the original brain uh, and then annotate that with neurocomputational models of how each type of neuron works, and finally run that whole emulation on a sufficiently powerful computer. Um, that would require some very advanced enabling technology that we don't yet have. Um, so we know that that is not just around the corner. Um, um, on the other hand, it would not require any theoretical breakthrough. It would not require any new deep conceptual understanding of how thinking works. You would only need to understand the components of the brain to be able to make progress with that. Um, so it's an open question, um, which of these will get there first? And diff different researchers have their own like favorite bets on that. Um, one, one thought that sometimes put to me is that if you, okay, so, so Nick, you're like worried about this AI stuff. So 
So maybe what we should do is to like really try to push ahead with biological enhancement uh, so that we can kind of keep up uh, with the computer. The computer's going to get smarter, but maybe if we enhance our own intelligence rapidly enough, we can keep one step ahead. I think that that's misguided. And, and in fact, if we do figure out ways to enhance biological cognition, I think that will only hasten the time uh, when machines overtake us. Um, because basically, we will then have smarter people doing the AI research and the computer science, and that they will solve the problem faster. Um, I still think that we probably have reason to, to try to accelerate uh, biological cognitive development, but not so that we can keep ahead of the computers, but that, so that when the time comes where we will create intelligent machines, that we will be more competent at doing so. Um, so let me just say a few words on this biological cognitive enhancement, um, because it, it might be, especially if you think of arrival dates for artificial intelligence, where it's not just around the corner, but maybe it will happen in, in the, the, the latter half of this century or something like that. By that time, there could be enough time to have like a new cohort of, of cognitively enhanced people around. And the technology that I think will first enable cognitive enhancement, uh, my best guess is that it will be through genetic interventions. Um, there are other paths, obviously, uh, smart drugs and such. I just I don't hold up much hope that they will do a great deal to improve general purpose smartness. Uh, they, they might, um, if there were a simple chemi chemical that you could just inject and it would make you a lot smarter, I think evolution would have found a way to endogenously produce that chemical. I think there might be ways to improve some peripheral characteristics, like uh, mental energy, say. Uh, or concentration, and where you can see that evolution would have optimized us for a certain type of environment where there are trade-offs between maybe metabolic consumption of the brain and the amount of mental energy you have, and in the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, the optimum point for that trade-off is at one place, and now we might want to move that, and maybe you could have some stimulant that just increases the, the burn rate of calories and give you more mental energy. And so, so peripheral adjustments like that, I think we could do maybe through drugs, but um, raw cleverness, I think genetics is a more likely initial uh, technology to do that. And um, so one way that that could work is uh, in the context of in vitro fertilization, where you have normally in the course of standard fer fertility procedure, maybe some six, eight, or ten eggs produced. Uh, and then the doctor chooses one of those to implant. And, and at the moment, uh, you can look for, like, obvious abnormalities, you might screen for some monogenic uh, disorders or for Down syndrome, which is done, but you can't really select positively for some complex trait today because we don't yet know um, the genetic architecture for, let's say, um, intelligence. Um, but we will, I think, soon know that because the, um, the price of gene sequencing is like falling and is now coming down sufficiently where it is becoming feasible to run these very large-scale studies with hundreds of thousands or, or even millions of subjects. And because it turns out that the, the additive uh, heritability, the variance in that in, in humans is not due to like one or two genes that differ between us, but a lot of genes, maybe hundreds, maybe even a few thousand, that each have a very, very small effect. And, and so to, to discover uh, a very, very small effect, you need a very large sample size. Um, and so you need to sequence a lot of genomes, and that was too expensive to do, really. But now there are studies underway with hundreds of thousands of people and, and, and maybe uh, soon millions. So that, I think, will 
tell us some of this information that would be needed. And then to start doing this, nothing else would be required, no new technologies at all. You just have the information and, and you sequence it and select embryos based on that. Um, now this, this would be vastly potentiated if it were combined with another technology that we don't yet have ready for use in humans, which is the ability to derive gametes uh, from stem cells. So then you could do iterated embryo selection. Um, we would generate an initial pool of embryos, uh, select one that's highest in like the expected trait value of interest, and then use that embryo to derive gametes, sperm and ova, that you could then recombine to get a new set of embryos. You pick out the best of those and you repeat. Um, so this, this technology uh, here, the, the ability to uh, create artificial gametes through stem cells, um, has, has been developed and, and done in mice, but uh, a significant uh, amount of additional work would be required to make it safe for use in humans. But if you had this, and this, this might take anything from like 10 to 30 or 40 years, it's hard to know. Um, this, this would have the effect of collapsing the human uh, generation cycle uh, from like 20, 30 years to a couple of months. Um, and so if you imagine this kind of old mad scientist eugenics uh, program where they would breed humans for like 500 years and make very sure who mated with whom, and, um, which setting aside all, all like the ethical uh, complications involved in that, which are legion, but I'm not going to talk about them here. Um, uh, not because I don't think they are there, but I just want to focus on the technical stuff. Um, it's just like infeasible on, on a lot of different levels. But here you would instead have something that could be done instead of 500 years, you could have it done over a year. And instead of changing the breeding patterns of large populations, you would have like a petri dish and like a scientist plucking around in that. And um, so through that, uh, you would be able to uh, probably achieve sort of weak forms of superintelligence in biology. I did a, an analysis with, with a colleague of mine, Carl Schulman, um, quite recently, where we tried to estimate for different assumptions about the selection power applied, what the, the, the gain uh, in intelligence would be. And so you can see here that if you, if you just produce two random embryos and select the best one, not the one that's actually best, but the one that looks most promising to the point, to the extent that this, this, there is like an additive genetic heritability, you may get four IQ points from that. Um, so if instead you select the best of one in 10, you can make 11, you can see here, even if you could select the best of one in 1,000, you only get maybe 24 IQ points. This is with single shot selection. But if you do this iterated embryo selection, and, and you could do five generations of selecting the best of one in 10, then you might get as many as 65 IQ points. And with 10 generations of one in 10, you'd get far be above what, what, what we've had uh, in, in human history. You'd get the kind of um, uh, phenotypes that, that have never existed in, in all of human history, the von Neumanns and stuff like that. So you observe here that um, while you get the quickly diminishing returns by just doing one shot selection from a pool of embryos, you uh, largely um, avoid that by doing this iterated selection. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm going to skip through this. Um, yeah, so that, that, that does look like it should be feasible without any sort of magical new technology coming around. And then that also, I think, adds to the, the, the possibility that we will eventually get AI stuff like that would be towards the end of this century if we haven't already solved the problem by then. This is significantly more capable uh, generation of humans working on it. 
Um, but ultimately, we will be uh, surpassed by intelligent machines, assuming we haven't succumbed to um, existential catastrophe uh, prior to that, uh, just because the fundamental limits to information processing in machine substrate are just far beyond those in, in biology, like in terms of speed. Even, even like transistors today are far faster than neurons. Um, so uh, I'm gonna, this is not relevant for you guys already know all of this. So there's like progress in AI that like, I mean, I'm just saying like the public consciousness is shaped by a few big milestones, but there's a lot of progress under the hood. Uh, also hardware has driven a lot of the progress we've seen. Here is a slice that could have been earlier. This is like with the brain emulation. This is basically the state of the art today. Um, here's a brain slice scanned with an electron micrograph. Uh, here is a stack of those pictures on top of one another, and here is the result of applying um, an image recognition uh, algorithm to extract the connectivity matrix. But although we have like the right resolution, I mean, you can see individual atoms if you want to in the brain. It's just that to image the brain with that level of resolution would take um, like forever. Um, so, so that we presumably at least decades away from like making something like that work. Um, a lot of application areas in game AI. Um, so um, the question of how far away we are from human level uh, machine intelligence, I think the short answer is that nobody knows. We, we did a survey on, of leading uh, AI experts last year, and one of the questions we asked was, by what year do you think there is a 50% chance that we will have human level machine intelligence? Here, here defined as one that could do most jobs that humans could do. And so the median answer to that we got was 2050 or 2040, depending exactly which group of experts we asked. That, seems to me roughly reasonable um, for what it's worth. Uh, we also ask, like, by what year do you think there's a 90% probability? And we got 2070 or 2075. That to me seems overconfident. Um, there's just a lot more than 10% probability, I think, that we will still have failed by then. Um, I, I should say as a footnote that this, 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 these estimates were conditioned on no like, global collapse occurring. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, so maybe the, the numbers would be, like the years would be slightly higher up if, if we hadn't made that assumption. Um, we also asked, um, if and when we do reach human level machine intelligence, uh, how long do you think it will take from there to go to some form of radical super intelligence? And, and you can see for yourself the answer is there. Now here again, my view uh, disagrees with those of the people we sample. I think I'm quite agnostic as to how far away we are from AI. I think we should like basically have a very smeared out probability distribution. Um, I do think there is a fairly large probability though that if and when we get to humanish level, we will soon after have superintelligence. I place a fairly high credence on there being at some point an intelligence explosion. So we need to sharply separate the two questions, like the distance between now and like human level, and the distance in time between that and radical superintelligence. I think this transition might well be very rapid. Uh, and, um, and, and, and things depend on that. So if you distinguish like qualitatively like fast takeoff scenarios, where we go from something humanish level to superintelligence within like minutes or hours or days, a couple of weeks, um, in that kind of scenario, it happens too fast for us to really be able to do anything much about it while it is happening. Uh, if we get a desirable outcome, it's because we set up the initial conditions just right. Um, by contrast, if, if one contemplates very slow takeoffs, you like, have some human level system and then uh, only by laboriously adding additional little incremental capability after capability, so it takes like decades or centuries to 
work your way up to superintelligence, then there would be a lot of more time for, for like new human institutions to rise, to deal with this, like to, um, to develop a new profession of experts to deal with this, to try things out, see what works, and then change it up. Um, so it makes a difference. Another way in which it makes a difference is that in fast takeoff scenarios, it's likely that you will have um, a singleton outcome, I think, which is basically a world order where at the highest level of decision making, there's like one decision making agency. Um, if you think about competing technology projects, whether it's nations racing to build satellites or nuclear weapons or, or competing tech projects, often there's like some competition and you're trying to get there first, but it's rare that the difference between the leader and the closest follower is like a couple of days. Like usually the leader would be like a few months ahead of the follower or a couple of years. Um, so if the takeoff is going to be over in a few days or a few weeks, then one project will have completed the takeoff before the next one will have started it, very likely. And then you will have a mature superintelligence in a world which contains no other even vaguely comparable system. And for reasons that I'll be happy to like elaborate on, on, on in the Q&A and that uh, like a lot of the book is about as well, uh, this first system then is likely to be very powerful, maybe to the point where it is able to shape the entire future according to its preferences. Um, if, if you have a slower takeoff, then it's more likely you get a multipolar outcome. No, no, no system is so far ahead of all the others that it can just lay down the law. Um, they end up super intelligent, but you will have economic uh, competitive forces and evolutionary dynamics working on this population of digital minds uh, shaping the outcome. And the concerns in that type of scenario look very different from, from the ones in the singleton scenarios. Um, not necessarily less serious, um, but different. So instead of having like one agency that can dictate the future, you, you now have this, this ecology of digital minds. Um, and you can think, I mean, so suppose you take it like as a, a model, <coughs> suppose we had like human level minds that were digital, like they could do exactly the same as, as humans do and, and run at the same speed initially. Suppose that that's like you get there through whole brain emulation and this is the first type of AI you have. Um, then you could very quickly have like a population explosion. So we know how to copy software that like takes a couple of minutes. And so as long as the productivity of these digital minds is, is higher than the cost of making another copy, uh, there would be vast incentives to just keep making more copies um, until the income that digital minds can uh, earn equals like the price of electricity and hardware rental. Um, so you have a Malthusian situation where the population of digital minds expands until uh, the wage falls to subsistence level, but subsistence level now for the digital minds rather than for biological minds. So we, we are a lot more expensive because uh, um, we have to eat and, and like have houses to live in and stuff like that. Um, so humans might still be able to make uh, some income through their capital uh, investment. Um, and there's then the question of whether in this world, which is increasingly shaped by the digital minds, there are trillions and trillions of them, and they're getting faster uh, all the time and better. Um, and, and humans constitute a small slice of all of this, whether we would be able in the long run to like, really enforce property rights and our social political structure. So whether these digital minds would eventually just sort of swamp us uh, and expropriate us. And, and at some point, presumably even in this Holborn emulation, at some point, probably fairly soon uh, after that point, you will have uh, synthetic AIs that, that are more optimized than whatever sort of structures biology came up with that will then kind of 
leave the whole bit. So, so there is a chapter in the book about that. But the bulk of the book is, um, so all the stuff that I talked about, about like how far away we are from it and stuff like that, is like one, one chapter about that in the beginning. Maybe the second chapter has something about different pathways. But the bulk of the book is really about the question of if and when we do reach uh, the ability to create human-level machine intelligence or machines that, that are as good as, uh, as we are in, in like computer science so they can start to improve themselves. What happens then? And, and what happens when you have a super intelligence that might be extremely powerful? What are the um, control methods that we could try to apply to achieve uh, like a controlled detonation if there's going to be an intelligence explosion? How could we set up the initial conditions to get um, some kind of beneficial outcome? Uh, and there are, a lot of, there are a lot of initially plausible ways to solve this problem that turn out on closer reflection not to work. And that this is kind of one of the types of progress that have occurred in this field. It's like a, a deepening appreciation of just how profound and difficult this problem is, of how you could create something vastly smarter than you and still ensure a desirable outcome. Um, so that's the bulk of the book. And then uh, the last two chapters are trying to think more generally about these macro strategic questions and how to think about what our levers of influence are. Um, if one wants to increase the probability of, of a desirable outcome. So I'll, I'll put down the pause there because I want to make sure we get a little bit of discussion in. Thanks. Thank you, Nick. Uh, we will use the microphone for questions, please. Uh, I'll just comment quickly. Uh, that 40-year uh, median for when we'll achieve human intelligence is I've been tracking that. It was about three to 400 years in 1999. It was maybe 50 years in 2006. We took a poll at, at this conference at Dartmouth, and now it's 40 years. Uh, I'm saying 2029, 20, but it's actually not so far off. Uh, I don't think we're going to get that far with enhancing biological intelligence, because our biological circuits are just inherently a million times slower than electronics. And so it's only so far you can get that way. Whole brain emulation is useful not to create an AI, but to be able to emulate a brain, or, or more likely a portion of a brain, to establish the functional description of what these basic circuits do to guide our creation of AI. My view, though, is that we are merging with this technology. I mean, it's already, during that one day SOPA strike, I felt like part of my brain went on strike, and so we are already enhanced. Uh, by these devices. When I was in college, I'd take my bicycle to the computer, now I carry it on my belt. I believe we will, these devices are getting smaller. They, within, say, the 2030s, they'll go inside our bloodstream and go into our brain, basically put our neocortex on the cloud so we can extend the 300 million uh, modules we have in the, in the neocortex uh, in the cloud. There will be a hybrid but I would agree that ultimately the non-biological portion will be so powerful that it will dominate. But that's a path to getting to, to mm -hmm. super intelligence. Uh, but I would argue that the non-biological portion it is human intelligence. I don't think it's non-human just because it's non-biological. So. Yeah, so whether, I mean, I guess one doesn't want to be uh, bogged down in, in the terminology of whether, like, I mean, I, it, it seems clear to me to call it non-human. But um, the idea that it's implemented in machine substrate, to me, uh, doesn't begin to answer the question of whether uh, the outcome is desirable or not. To me, it would all depend on exactly what kind of intelligence is there in this machine substrate, and what is it doing? What is it using its resources for? Like, I could, 
Um, like, I mean, it, it's, you, can, you can imagine like that we're discovering that we are all in a simulation, we're already all digital. Like, so what, like, I mean, that, that wouldn't mean that human life doesn't have any um, moral significance just because we're not biological as we thought. So in principle, you could have a digital mind with exactly the same experience and capabilities as we do, and presumably it should count for the same morally. However, there are a lot of really bizarre types of, of minds that um, are possible in principle, and I think, um, one of the slides further down and one of the um, key questions that the book tries to answer is how can we think about the motivations of super intelligent agents? Uh, is it possible to say something useful uh, about what they would want to do? We're all evolving together. There's like two billion people that are enhanced with these devices now. And as they get more intimate with us, it's not gonna be like these science features and movies of one evil corporation that's got this technology uh, it's going to be billions of us that enhance together, like it is today. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the growth of collective intelligence. I mean, I, I think that at some point, the, the, the sort of the fleshy parts that are in crania will, will uh, A, they will be a lot harder to enhance, and they will become just a kind of negligible part of, of, of the, the actual intelligence that is created. And uh, that... Everything then depends on us having set up the initial conditions. So like superintelligence will be extremely powerful. We have the one advantage that we get to make the first move. And I think we only get one try there. Because once you have like an unfriendly superintelligence, it will re resist you sort of changing its values. And so, so part of what makes the problem so challenging is that you need to get it right on the first attempt. Uh, and, and humans are generally not very good at that. We like to sort of see how things work out and patch things up and learn from experience. Uh, I want to um, explore what you mean when you say a desirable outcome, what desirable means. There's this uh, old philosophical problem of the utility monster. It's sort of a challenge to, to, to a utilitarian notion of morality, which is imagine that there's some creature that uh, wants something more than the rest of humanity as a, uh, combined, um, feeding the one thing that it wants because it wants it so much more maximizes utility, ignoring the rest of humanity. Uh, so, so in some sense, the superintelligence scenario can give life to the utility monster uh, in the sense that if, it's if, if the cognition after the explosion is vastly greater than the total sum of cognition of humanity, then perhaps the moral consideration of what a desirable outcome should be should only be paying attention to what it wants, not what we want. Right. So I, I wanted to raise that as a challenge. I'm not advocating that perspective, but I want to see uh, how you reason about desirability when we're co in a world where we're coexisting with superintelligence. Yeah, generally speaking, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's easier to, to describe what an undesirable outcome would be than uh, a desirable one. So there are a lot of ways in which like, things could turn out that by most reasonable lights we would regard as pretty worthless. So like the standard example in, in this little like, literature is the paperclip maximizer. So an AI that's super intelligent and has that's its only final highest level goal to maximize the number of paperclips it produces. Um, this is a stand-in for some other arbitrary goal. But most final goals, um, if you think through, how would the world would be structured in order to maximize the realization of that goal um, would involve, as a side effect, the elimination of human beings and everything we care about. So if you're a superintelligence that's a singleton, 
and you want to make sure that there are as many paper clips as possible, for a start, you would want to get rid of all humans because maybe we'll like want to switch off or something like that, and then there will be fewer paper clips. Um, we also have like bodies that are full of juicy atoms that could be used to make some really nice paper clips. So then you think, okay, let's not do paper clips. That's ridiculous. But then you think of something else. Like, what about an AI who only wants to like calculate uh, the decimal expansion of pi? So similarly, well, such an AI like would want to maximize the amount of hardware it has so it can like make more rapid progress in this calculation, and it actually turns out to be quite difficult to specify a goal that would not be maximally realized in a world where, where not just human biological organisms are extinct, but also anything we would plausibly place value on is, is eradicated. So the, the premise there is that, I, I, wonder, I want to really focus on the premise, because I think that the, the argument hinges on it, uh, that we're taking a snapshot of what it is we value today where we includes the, the things that we consider to be adequately cognitive today, and we're ignoring in our d definition of desirability, let's, let's go to the extreme of the paperclip scenario. Uh, a utilitarian might say, well, okay, if it wants paperclips, but its, its overall cognition is vastly greater than the rest of humanity as a whole, well, then that's what it wants. So, so the, the, the weighted definition of desirability should be to maximize paperclips because that's what it wants. Uh, well, okay, so there are different versions of utilitarianism. There is preference satisfactionism, which I think is what you alluded to, which would stipulate some sort of social welfare function uh, that is maximized by uh, fully satisfying all preferences that exist. There's a big problem of how to aggregate them, but something along those lines. Other utilitarians would say maximize pleasure or maximize happiness or maximize some other part. Um, the common feature being um, that the sort of the value of the whole is, as it were, the sum of the value of the part. Um, if you thought preference satisfactionism was correct, uh, you might want to design agents with easy to satisfy preferences. Like they want there to be at least three prime numbers or something like that, and then you're done. And then maybe to have as many as possible of those agents, like the minimum agent that would count as a morally uh, considerable being. Uh, but that, that seems like a fairly impossible moral view. Um, but one can decompose this big, this big sort of problem into two parts. On the one hand, you have the technical problem of if you, if you, if you specified some value in human language, like whether it's maximized happiness or freedom or love or creativity, whatever it is, like, then how could you sort of embed that into a seed AI, like an AI that's destined eventually to become a super intelligence? So this is like an enormous technical problem. Uh, because like in C++, you don't have like a primitive like saying happiness, right? You have to define all of these terms. Um, some goals would be feasible, like maybe you calculate as many digits of pi. That's something we could do today. Others, like there's this big unsolved technical problem. But then on top of that, you also have uh, the second problem, which is the value selection problem, like trying to figure out which value it is that you would want to get in there in the first place. And both of these are places where we could easily stumble. Uh, so just. To, to reflect on, on like if, if the idea was to try to do some, some like AI that was like ethical, like or maximally uh, always did the more the right thing to do, if we, if we try to achieve that by just creating a list or, or somehow embedding our current best understanding of ethics um, into a final goal, 
um, we, sh we should, should reflect that if any earlier age had done this with their values, it would have been what we can now see, a catastrophe. So earlier ages like were condoning like slavery or human sacrifice and all kinds of abuses of different minorities and stuff. And presumably, even though we might have made some uh, progress um, towards moral enlightenment, we haven't gotten all the way there. So it would be important to preserve the possibility for moral growth um, in the value selection. And the, the best, and so there are a number of different paths that each should be explored because we're still at such an early stage here. Um, but maybe the one of the more promising one is this idea of indirect normativity that I describe in the book, which is the idea that rather than trying to explicitly characterize some desired end state, um, we try to um, motivate the AI to pursue some process whereby it can find out what it is that we were trying uh, to, to work out when, when we were working on this problem. So suppose you could give the uh, AI the goal of doing that, which we would have asked it to do if we had had like 40,000 years to think about this question, and if we ourselves had been smarter, and if we had known more facts. Uh, so now we, we don't know what that is currently, but it's an empirical question that we could then hopefully leverage the uh, AI's superior intelligence to make a better estimate of. Um, and then that kind of indirectly specified goal might then be more likely to produce an outcome that, that we would recognize on reflection as being worthwhile. So, so I have a story. Uh, the other day I was uh, reading some of the uh, news and analysis about the crisis in the Middle East, and I guess I spent like an hour thinking about it, and uh, I didn't come up with a solution for the Middle East. <laughs> now, if I had been a speed super intelligence, and in, in that hour I had spent a thousand hours of thinking, I think I still wouldn't have come up with a solution. So I, I think there are some problems for which intelligence by itself isn't the answer. And, you know, as humans, we put sapiens in our name. Uh, we think intelligence is really important, but it's not the only attribute. I don't think it solves all problems. Yeah, so that, I, mean, I, I agree with that. Um, so a lot of sort of social political problems in the human realm often depends on like people with conflicting preference. There might just not exist one solution that would maximally please everybody. Um, and with the case of the AI, I mean, I think that in fact the most important problem to work on is not the intelligence problem, which a lot of hastens today where we have it, but rather this control problem, um, how to ensure that it would then you know, deploy its intelligence in ways that are not harmful. And, um, just, just briefly, there are like two broad classes of control method that one can envisage here. So one is capability control method, um, where you try to limit what the AI is able to do. So maybe you put it in a box, you unplug the Ethernet cable, um, you only allow it to communicate by typing text on the screen, let's say, maybe only even answers to questions that are posed to it, and you try to clip its wings. And um, I, I think that those it can be important during the development phase, like before you actually are ready to launch your system. Uh, but ultimately, I don't think they are the answer because in order for this AI actually to have any um, effect on the world, it will at some point need to interact with it. Like if you literally just had an isolated box that didn't closely interact with the world, yes, it would be safe, but it would also not do anything at all. Um, but as soon as you have, say, a human being communicating with it, then, then you have a weak link here. Like humans are not secure systems. Um, and even, 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 even humans often like, succeed in manipulating or tricking or deluding other humans to do their like, scam artists. And so if you had like, a superhumanly powerful persuader and manipulator, chances are eventually it would find a way to talk its way out of the box, unless it could just hack its way out like, 
by it. So, so there are things like we think, oh, well, we just put it in a box if we don't talk to it. You say, well, maybe there are some unanticipated way that we haven't thought of, like by wiggling its electrons around in its circuitry, maybe it could create micro or electromagnetic waves that could influence some nearby apparatus or something like that. So then we think, I'll oh, put it in a Faraday cage, but okay, so if we just keep patching up all the flaws that we can find, then we will just patch up all the ones we can find, but there are probably some more ones that we can think of, and then it will use one of those. So the second class of uh, control method is uh, motivation selection methods, where instead of, or in addition to trying to limit what the system can do, it tried to engineer its motivation system so that it would not want to uh, cause harm. Um, and um, that's then where this indirect normativity comes in as one version of that, and there are many other, um, many other aspects of that. Um, and, and that's, I think, the, the problem that we ultimately will need to solve. So if you'd use these two mechanisms to control it, um, still um, it comes back to this question on the other side of the equation, like it somehow turns its fitness function into a will to dominate us um, because of its will to survive. But we also have that will to survive. And even though we make mistakes, it seems like the argument of a superintelligence coming to completely dominate us requires a uh, lapse of attention on our part and our own promotion of our de desire to survive for long enough for it to actually be irretrievable. Um, so have you considered that it seems like even in all of the horrific things that you've described that could happen if a superintelligence did come to dominate, there would be that takeoff duration period where we would presumably wake up and unplug it. Well, so one, one would imagine if, if like the, the developers are somewhat sensible that they wouldn't actually like permit the takeoff unless they at least believed that the system was safe. Like, so it was imagine a scenario where where they have maybe falsely deluded themselves that there is no flaw in their system. Or maybe they're just worried that there is this competitor who is soon going to release another system. So even if they haven't spent enough time on the safety, they still. Um, but you have to uh, take into account that you're here dealing with like an intelligent adversary. So um, even just a human level mind in this situation could uh, like figure out that it has an incentive to pretend to be nice, whether or not it actually is nice. Like when you are weak, and at the mercy of your programmers who are inspecting you and seeing if you're ready to be released. Um, and if you're an unfriendly AI, you would want to sort of behave cooperatively and, and pleasingly and do all of these things. Like you can plan ahead to that extent. And, and only once you're sort of strong enough that it doesn't matter whether anybody tries to stop you because they can't. Only then would it be safe for you to reveal your true nature. So there is this fundamental flaw in the, this is one of those like initially plausible ideas that don't seem to work. Like you, you keep the, you develop your AI, you keep it in a sandbox, like a secure environment, and you watch it for a while to see that it behaves nicely. And only once you've seen that it's like cooperative and nice and friendly there, do you let it out. And the flaw is that there's this possibility for like strategic uh, behavior uh, that unfriendly AIs could like mimic a friendly AI. Um, and um, you mentioned something about this like survival desire. So there is something like that, but it looks different. So for we humans have, um, we don't really have a clean agent architecture. There's not like one final goal for most of us. And like, there are a lot of different drives that rise and fall in strength depending on the time of day and like the environment we're in. Um, but if you have this architecture where there is like a clearly defined final goal and everything else is pursued only by virtue of uh, being conducive to the attainment of this final goal, then um, there are a couple of theses that I think help you think about that kind of 
structure. So on the one hand, you have the orthogonality thesis, as I call it. This is the idea that um, values and intelligence are orthogonal. You could have virtually any combination of them. Like a really smart system could be really benevolent or really evil or have some like bizarre goal like paper clips or something human meaningful. There's no necessary ontological connection. Um, on the other hand, you also have this instrumental convergence thesis, which says that for almost any final goal and almost any environment, there will be certain um, instrumental values that you will recognize once you're smart enough. For example, the, the value to, uh, to prevent uh, your own death. And so if you're a paperclip maximizer, the only reason that you don't want to die is not because you sort of value being alive. It's just that you predict that there will be fewer paperclips if you're switched off today. Because if you're still around tomorrow, you will still be working to make more paperclips. And similarly, goal content preservation. Um, you can predict that if somebody changed your goals, then tomorrow you will no longer be working to make paperclips. Now you will be working to make staplers, and then there will be fewer paperclips. So you being a paperclip maximizer today will want to like, prevent somebody from changing your goals. Um, and there are others like acquiring more material resources or enhancing your own intelligence so that you become better able to realize whatever your goal are. And it's that combination between the sort of the lack of any necessary connection between final goal and intelligence that, and, and this convergent instrumental reasons to just do things that are inconsistent with human values that, that creates the intrinsic danger there. You have to engineer a very particular kind of final goal um, uh, to have a final goal such that if it's actually maximally pursued by a superintelligence would be consistent with, with human survival. Maybe something that kind of embeds within it the same values that, that we have. Um, so we've been talking a lot about hypothetical stuff. Uh, what about some concrete stuff, uh, namely policymakers? So we're talking here about scenarios that are potentially very dangerous and you know, like that may scare policymakers whom we know are technologically not at the level of this audience and may start making decisions which will slow down or impede the progress or maybe even ban computer science, you know, like that tries to do AI research because of the fears that prop up in some of them. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, like the policy making process and, you know, like legislator process around uh, issues uh, of artificial intelligence? And can we expect that, you know, like computer scientists are one day labeled as terrorists? I, I don't think that that's very likely for various reasons. Um, it's, it's hard at the moment to see exactly what it is, even if policymakers were willing to do something, what that could actually do that would be helpful rather than harmful. Um, at the moment, what needs to be done, I think, is more foundational work to build up a clearer understanding of what precisely the problem is. Uh, and then ultimately, it's mostly a technical research challenge to work out the solution to this control problem. It requires some uh, top-notch mathematical talent, you know, working together with theoretical computer scientists and maybe some philosophical expertise, like to, to really crack this problem. Um, it's very hard to see how, like, from some high level of government, so it's a very blunt instrument, and you might even with the best intentions at the start, like at the top, once it filters down through the the, the bureaucracy, um, it might have a very different effect than than the one you intended. Uh, so there are some other existential risks that where I think it would be easier to imagine ways in which uh, regulation could help. Um, AI is like particularly difficult, um, even just to understand what the problem is, um, is, 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 is quite hard. And it, it's hard to imagine like a scenario, in, at least in the next like couple of decades, where we would have like some kind of same thing coming from 
political processes. Maybe the closest would be like more funding for work on the control problem. Um, but even that, once it sort of filters through the, the vested interest in academia, will probably translate into a rain of funding falling on a wide range of superficially related areas that might not actually have anything to do with the control problem, like general computer security or something like that. Um, but, but there are other things that can be done. So like um, there are some organizations that are working on this. Um, so we are doing some work at the uh, Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. Another is the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, MIRI, uh, at Berkeley. They have some excellent people as well. Um, that, that would be an obvious thing. And, and generally try to recruit like, some of the brightest uh, uh, minds of, of our generation and the next generation to, to sort of focus on this. At the moment, worldwide, maybe there are, I don't know, half a dozen people or so like, equivalent working full time on this. Um, which is, is out, not in proportion to the importance of the problem. Um, it's a more like general issue. We, we, I did a little literature survey a couple of years ago. I just compared the number of um, academic papers on, on the dung beetle compared to the number on human extinction. And, and I'm sad to tell you that there was more than an order of magnitude more on the dung beetle. Um, uh, so the, the, the positive spin on that is that there are enormous opportunities for somebody who actually does care <laughs> like, to make a, a big difference. Like even one extra person or one like, extra million or something can do a lot of good there uh, because it's so neglected. Uh, so regarding uh, policy and political things, I think the general underlying principle here is that modern governments are like big battleships or big tanks. Uh, they do very well against uh, large stationary targets, but against uh, small mobile targets, they're extremely ineffective. And so if AI were like nuclear weapons, where in order to produce it, you need these giant static manufacturing facilities that are very expensive and are like fixed in one place so you can see where it is, then the political aspect, how you regulate it and whether you regulate it is very important. Uh, but artificial intelligence isn't like that. You can develop it from anywhere in the world. Your computer might cost $10,000, and it might be anywhere in the world since you can do things through the cloud. Um, and uh, when governments try to uh, handle um, the, uh, these sorts of uh, small mobile targets, like you know, individual websites or individual people on the internet. Um, it doesn't really matter, uh, compared to the nuclear weapons case, very much uh, what kinds of things they do, because governments just can't hit that kind of target. It's like you know, uh, piracy uh, of uh, software is in theory punishable by you know, whatever penalty, but uh, as we see like everywhere in the world, those kinds of things are totally ineffective at achieving their stated goals. It depends a little bit on what the scenario is here that we're having. Like, so if, if there were some like, scenario in which they would try to prevent AI from ever being developed, I think that's a lot more far-fetched. Uh, a slightly more possible scenario is where it became clear which product were going to succeed and that it was going ahead. And then they would acquire that. Like they would nationalize it. Um, but then that doesn't solve the problem. It just means that now you have like, an encapsulation. So maybe it's all placed within. like under the federal government and they have like military guarding the whole thing, but you will still have the same people inside basically working on the same problem. And so that, that outcome might not, scenario might not make that much difference one way or the other. Um, you, you still have the same basic technical problem inside. And, and it's also unclear like to what extent it would be possible for non-experts to really be able to exert micro-level influence on the precise design of the AI. I mean, you have to know what you're doing to be able to do that. Um, I think, I mean, things that they could do in general, they're indirect things that, I mean, so working harder to achieve like uh, a global peace and coordination and like would help with a lot of 
problems, in like including AI. Maybe it makes it easier in, in the future if there were like a race dynamic between different countries that they could join together and do one joint thing rather than racing to get there first and then having to cut back on safety. Um, there, there are things that could be done maybe to facilitate like um, biological cognitive enhancement. That if, if that was the will, you could certainly imagine like different kinds of funding and policies for accessing and, and linking different databases uh, that, that could be done and stuff like that that would be useful. So there are potentially cost-effective indirect ways of approaching this problem. In addition to directly working on, on the control problem, um, there, there are these other levers that one can also consider, particularly on things that we're still quite far away from, from, from the relevant crunch time. Hi there. I was just curious. Uh, you're one of the world's experts in superintelligence and the existential risks. Uh, in pers just personally speaking, informally, intuitively, do you think we're going to make it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that the, uh, I mean, like, I mean, um, yeah, probably like less, less than 50% risk of, of doom. Uh, but I, I don't know exactly what the number is. I mean, um, the more important question, I guess, is to what, ex like, what is the best way to, to push it down? Um, so that's, that's where most of the mental energy is going into. Um. So with that, please thank our guest today. Thank you, Nick.